Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, want to buy a ton of carbon dioxide? Maybe invisible and odorless, but it could have the smell of money. The good news is that people can potentially make money off of reducing pollution. That's how you can harness market forces to protect the environment. How to cash in on carbon dioxide and the value of radar images from space. A climate scientist counts the many waves. From long to short wavelengths, uh, it's uh, PLCX, for example, and, and I call it Peter Loves Claudius Xylophone. And environmentalists love new satellite sensors. Also grunting, music to the ears of worms. Once you make the right music, they'll get a dancing for you. Hopefully I'm doing it. <laughs> the Dirt on Earthworms and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. In the coming weeks and months, you'll be hearing a lot about cap-and-trade. The president is counting on it to help bail out the budget and save the planet. Cap-and-trade is a scheme for buying and selling the right to emit carbon dioxide. It allows the marketplace to put a price on that pollution, aiming to reduce the greenhouse gas over time. Cap-and-trade has been used successfully before. It sharply limited acid rain and smog. Professor Robert Stevens is director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program at the JFK School of Government, and he says cap-and-trade has a lot going for it. Well, the good news is that people can potentially make money off of reducing pollution. That's how you can harness market forces to protect the environment. So that's actually the good news of these approaches, is that it provides opportunity for people to make money as long as it's done in legitimate ways. Well, let's go through cap and trade. Let's start with the um, the cap. So the cap is set to limit pollution overall, much as it is with any kind of environmental regulation. So you say to a producer of carbon dioxide, can only produce this amount no more. Well, the cap doesn't refer, importantly, to individual producers. It refers to the economy as a whole. So the cap might provide that emissions are going to be reduced this year by... and the next year by 2%, over time by, in fact, 80%. That's the cap, and it's across the entire sector or even the entire economy. And the trade? And the trade is that individual firms under the cap have each been allocated allowances. It's a big political question of how they're allocated. And then they are free to trade, but they can only emit as much pollution as the allowance says. And if you add up all those allowances, all the tons in the allowances, that's equal to the cap. And the cap is declining over time. So it seems that uh, another name for cap and trade might be carrot and stick or maybe stick and carrot. I think that that's absolutely right. The carrot is that it is going to cost something to some firms and can benefit others to engage in a trade. So there are gains from trade. And the stick that no one should forget is that monitoring and enforcement is required, both of the emissions themselves or the carbon use, and for that matter, also of the allowance trading system. So private industry is not too happy about this because they got to buy these things. 
Well, there's tremendous support within private industry for the cap-and-trade approach in general because they see regulation coming and it's the lowest-cost approach for them. There is not widespread support for the auctioning of the allowances because when the allowances are auctioned, it means private industry pays not only their control costs, but they also pay for the right to emit. Well, the Obama administration is literally banking on this money. How much money are we talking about here? Well, the Obama administration in its recent budget uh, projected that they would obtain revenues on the order of 750 to $800 billion over a period of uh, close to a decade from the auction of the allowances, from selling the allowances to private industry. Would I be able to buy one of these allowances? Well, that's interesting because under the way at least the previous statutes have been written for the SO2 allowance trading program, whether or not you are regulated by the program, in that case an electricity generator, you can buy an allowance. And in fact, under the SO2 allowance trading program, you can go to the EPA website and see this, a substantial number of the purchases of allowances have been by student groups. And they take that allowance and you know what they do with it? They tear it up. And something remarkable happens when an individual citizen buys an allowance in a cap-and-trade program and tears it up or hides it. They have actually made more stringent the overall cap that was enacted by the Senate, the House of Representatives, and signed by the president. Because they've reduced the number of shares. That's right. That's right. And it's remarkable. I mean, frankly, I don't know of any other public policy in any sphere where an individual citizen through their actions can actually render more stringent a policy enacted by the Congress. So can it reduce the greenhouse gas? It may work in the marketplace, buying and selling, but will it actually reduce greenhouse gases? If the cap is set to bring down the level of CO2 and or other greenhouse gases over time, then as long as monitoring and enforcement is working, then it will definitely work. And our experience with these programs is that they work. Uh, Compliance with the acid rain, the SO2 allowance trading program, is about 99.9%. But what about um, capping and trading things like uh, leaving the fossil fuel in the ground? Well, essentially, that's what's happening. That's an interesting point. I mean, essentially what happens with a cap-and-trade system is that it increases the cost of bringing coal, for example, into the economy. In fact, many people have said that a meaningful uh, carbon policy is essentially a tax on coal because that's what they really become because of the great carbon intensity of coal compared to the other fossil fuels. And indeed, a meaningful cap-and-trade program, such as the one the administration has described, will indeed discourage production of coal with one very important exception, and that's the possibility of technologies being developed for carbon capture and storage. That is, using coal to generate electricity, capturing the stack gases, separating out the carbon dioxide, liquefying it, and putting it underground in storage. There are a lot of chains in that very long sentence, and there's a lot of technological uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, holy ground. Well, it's certainly the holy grail for the coal industry and for many electricity generators who are highly reliant upon coal. Professor Robert Stevens is director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program at the JFK School of Government. Professor, thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Well, as good as it may sound, cap and trade is far from a done deal. President Obama proposes, but Congress may not feel disposed, especially moderate Democrats from heartland states who are cool to action on global warming that could harm industries in their districts. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young is keeping tabs on the political climate for a climate change bill and has our report. 
California Democrat Henry Waxman put the environment at the center of his 35 years in Congress. Now, as chair of the powerful House Energy Committee, Waxman is at the center of efforts on the planet's biggest environmental threat. He'll push a strong cap-and-trade bill on climate change through his diverse and sometimes fractious committee. Our committee is an interesting committee. Our committee represents the whole House. A bill that will emerge from our committee is a bill that I think can pass the House and may well be a model for the Senate. But don't tell them I said that, because they'll want to do their own bill, and that's fine, too. The Founding Fathers devised the Senate as the cooling saucer in lawmaking, and that's where a global warming bill might get the chilliest reception. Yes, Waxman has some strong allies in the Senate eager to tackle climate change, and many will likely introduce bills of their own. But a list of those supporters reads like a trip along the country's coasts. What's missing is a big chunk of the heartland. Geography, not party, determines a senator's stance on energy. And a block of centrist Democrats from the industrial Midwest and coal-dependent South could well hold the key. Last month, on the night President Obama called on Congress to cap carbon emissions, I sought out the senators known as the Gang of 15. Some of them sent a letter last year to Democratic leaders laying out reasons they could not support climate change legislation. And the group has grown. There are people like Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. I support dealing with climate change. The devil's going to be in the details. And Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri. Uh, Yes, of course. I want to support a climate change bill, but the devil's in the details. And Senator Kent Conrad of North Dakota, who says, you guessed it. Uh, Devil's in the details. What are those devilish details? Well, they boil down to two main points, competition from China and energy from coal. In Missouri, about 80 percent of the electricity comes from coal, the most carbon-heavy fossil fuel. Missouri Senator McCaskill fears dramatic rate increases if power plants aren't allowed time to reduce carbon emissions. We have to make sure that that the people of Missouri don't end up paying two or three times what they're paying now to turn on the lights. Um, We can't mandate a draconian cap-and-trade system if the utilities in the country don't have the technology available to them. So we have to make sure that that technology is proven and accessible before we impose the kind of standards that are impossible to obtain. But uh, carbon capture might be a decade away. Does that mean we would have to wait a decade before we address climate change? Scientists tell us we don't have that much time. Oh, no. We we have to address climate change immediately, and we will. Uh, I just think that, that we've got to find that sometimes elusive middle ground. There are widely varying economic analyses of what a cap-and-trade bill might mean for energy costs. McCaskill's concern about rates doubling or tripling is far higher than what most economists project. Senator Evan Bayh represents another coal-dependent state, Indiana. He worries about additional costs for businesses already suffering from the economic downturn and foreign competition. If we're going to really bite the bullet here and make progress, as I believe we must, we've got to find a way to get China and India and the other rapidly developing countries involved. Because to ask the American people to sacrifice and then have that sacrifice go for naught is not the outcome we need. The senators have a lot to think about, and an army of lobbyists is there to help. The nonpartisan think tank Center for Public Integrity found more than 2,300 lobbyists working on the issue. That's four lobbyists for every member of Congress, and most work for fossil fuel industries. 
Duke Energy CEO Jim Rogers did some lobbying of his own this month. He met with centrist Democrats to talk about how companies like his, which burn coal for most of the electricity they sell, should get carbon permits under a cap-and-trade bill. President Obama wants companies to have to purchase them in an auction. Rogers disagrees. I can support cap-and-trade. I can support an 80% reduction by 2050. But what I need changed... And what the 25 states where more than 50 percent of electricity comes from coal needs changed is how we do the transition period. Rogers says the government should give a portion of the carbon permits to companies like his at first, then require them to be purchased over time. That would allow time to either develop technology to capture emissions or use cleaner fuels. But many economists say giving away carbon permits is like giving away money and makes little sense. Obama's budget director, Peter Orzag, made that case in hearings on the Hill and pressed lawmakers to auction off 100 percent of the permits. He made a believer of Texas Democratic Representative Lloyd Doggett. Dr. Orzag uh, told me that the giveaway allowances, uh, quote, would represent the largest corporate welfare program that has ever been enacted in the history of the United States. And on this question of whether or not we ought to give pollute-free cards to polluters, uh, I've reached the conclusion they ought not to get any, that this ought to be a 100 percent auction of the right to pollute or allowances. But how to do that while winning over his party's moderates? That's another of those details Democrats could have a devil of a time sorting out. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Just ahead, seeing the forest and the trees. Advanced satellites spy on climate change. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. President Obama has been busy reversing the policies of the previous president, recently lifting the ban on federal funding for stem cell research and ordering government officials to put science before politics. It is about ensuring that scientific data is never distorted or concealed to serve a political agenda and that we make scientific decisions based on facts, not ideology. But despite his focus on things scientific, the president is still without two of his most important science advisors, they're John Holdren to head up the Office of Science and Technology Policy and Jane Lubchenco, the nominee to head up NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Both Holdren and Lubchenco sailed through their confirmation hearings, but have been in Senate limbo ever since. And that worries Francesca Griffo. She directs the Scientific Integrity Program with the Union of Concerned Scientists. One of the things that we've been very concerned about is the scientific advice for the president. And that's really the role of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, is to be there to think about these very difficult, very complex science and policy issues for the president. And, you know, NOAA, a very important agency, not only does it deal with, you know, endangered fishes, but also other fisheries issues, climate issues. So there are very important things in front of these folks. And I'm sure they are very anxious to have these holds lifted and to be able to to go and do their jobs, which, of course, are the jobs that will benefit the American public in the long run. So the Senate is holding these nominations up for reasons that are, are secret. What's going on? Well, unfortunately, it does happen. You know, the Senate has different procedures from the House, and this is one of those things that they're allowed to do, is if a senator, for whatever reason, would like to hold up an appointment, they can do that by placing one of these holds. And they don't have to reveal who has the hold. Are these senators trying to 
get something out of the administration and they're just kind of holding these nominations hostage until they get what they want? Hard to know in this case. I think there probably was some sort of calculation in the minds of the people putting on the holds of, hmm, maybe science advisor, maybe head of NOAA, not so important that the American public is going to link it immediately to something that has consequences for their lives. But I think that's where they're wrong. I think that it's not such a big leap for people to understand, and it certainly is the case that the decisions that are made in these agencies, the decisions that are related to science, in fact, do have a bearing on our lives every day in so many ways, whether it's our health and safety, whether it's the quality of our environment, they do, in fact, have a profound impact. And, you know, President Obama does not have these critical people by his side. You know, the memorandum that was released recently by President Obama on scientific integrity certainly tells us one thing that he'd like Dr. Holdren and the Office of Science and Technology Policy to work on, and that is to develop a strategy that really ensures that there is scientific integrity in all aspects of the executive branch's involvement with science, scientific and technological issues. That's a big, big assignment, but it is certainly one that is very important. And obviously what they're able to do about it is going to be limited until they have a director in place. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. And at some point, they're going to realize that the consequences of that problem are much bigger than the other issues at hand. Francesca Griffo is director of the Scientific Integrity Program with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, as we mentioned, the president has chosen John Holdren as his science advisor. Holdren is a physicist by training and a professor of environmental policy at Harvard. Until he took a leave of absence, he was investigating the causes and consequences of global climate change. Holdren also had to step down as the director of the Woods Hole Research Center in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Woods Hole is an independent institute focusing on environmental science, education, and public policy. Living Arts executive producer Steve Kerwood is on the center's board of trustees, and while he's been there many times, I only got my first chance recently when I drove down to do some interviews for this story about using satellites to monitor deforestation and climate change. So I took out my trusty GPS and promptly got lost. I eventually found Woods Hole, but you can't always depend on Google Earth, says Joseph Kelndorfer, and he should know. He's an expert in satellite pictures of the Earth at the Research Center. Google Earth is a, a beautiful system which we use uh, tremendously even now in, in science, but it is still in the stages of being a static system where we get uh, maps or data sets that are possibly a couple of years older. Kelndorfer is an associate scientist at Woods Hole. He uses remote sensing technology to monitor the health of our planet. usually describe myself recently as one of the radiologists on staff. The patient is the Earth. On the corridor walls and offices at Woods Hole Research Center are poster-sized photos taken from space, showing the patient in exquisite detail. We stop in front of one particularly spectacular shot of the Amazon rainforest taken by Landsat, the granddaddy of all remote Earth-sensing satellites. No, Landsat has been the, the workhorse of remote sensing for, uh, you know, 30-some years. We're into the final half minute of the countdown now for the launch of the Delta II with Landsat 7. T-minus 20 seconds. Everything go at this time. The Landsat program began in 1972. The launch of Landsat 1 put into orbit the first satellite designed to specifically study and monitor the planet's landmasses. Five, four... Landsat 7, launched in 1999, is the most recent. 
Main engine start and liftoff of the Delta II rocket with the advanced Landsat 7 spacecraft. Landsat 7 quit after four years in space, but Landsat 5 is still going strong. This month marks its 25th year of sending pictures of planet Earth back from space. Woods Hole Research Center senior scientist Scott Getz says Landsat has created a unique historical archive. Well, Landsat really changed our worldview, I think, because it, uh, it just suddenly we were able to look at, you know, maps of land use change and... Um, the application of Landsat imagery just was amazing how it became used in just about every science application you can imagine. Landsat has documented the formation of volcanoes, floods, cyclones, and earthquakes, even sending photos from space of President Obama's inauguration. Now Landsat 5 and Earth-orbiting satellites launched by the United States and other countries are going to be given a new job, monitoring climate change. But Evo de Boer head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change fears the satellites may not be up to the task. Being able to, to measure what is happening is incredibly important to developing a robust international climate change response. Um, you, you wouldn't expect it in this modern day and age, but actually our ability to, to monitor greenhouse gas emissions is still relatively weak. The problem is the sensor technology. It's not just old, it's old school. Again, Woods Hole scientist Joseph Kellendorfer. One of the Lancet shortcomings is, of course, it's an optical sensor. So there are regions that you don't get images for several years because of the cloud cover. Being able to take images through clouds and at night is critical for monitoring the health of the world's tropical forests. Trees store carbon, and deforestation and destruction of these vast forests accounts for roughly a fifth of greenhouse gas emissions. That's where ALOS comes in. Two years ago, the Japanese space agency launched a new era in remote sensing systems, ALOS, the Advanced Land Observing Satellite. Aboard ALOS is a sensor called PALSAR. It uses radar to take images of Earth. Radar's long wavelengths can penetrate clouds. There are a number of radar frequencies used in remote sensors, Joseph Kellendorfer uses a mnemonic device to keep track of them. From long to short wavelengths, uh, it's uh, PLCX, for example, and, and I call it Peter Love's Claudius xylophone. And remote sensing scientists love radar. Not only can radar space sensors see through clouds with Pulsar's powerful system, they can see the forest from the trees and the trees through the forest canopy. Again, in the radar here, we see clearly that between the 2007 image and the 2008 image, this patch of forest has been cut. Just by the color combination of the two signals, you see immediately what's popping out in, in the red colors here is, is what's been deforested. An example Boy, nothing of, gets past you then. Not much anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can clearly uh, detect a lot of these dynamics. ALOS can now quickly map the world in a matter of weeks, where before it took a year or more. And two new polar orbiters can do it even faster. They're equipped with an advanced type of imager that can take high-resolution photos of the planet in a day. Woods Hole senior scientist Scott Getz analyzes the data. Well, what you can see in this is the Amazon basin. You can see logging expansion here, and then this settlers have moved in. And you can also see this very large... Uh, deforestation uh, associated with soy farming. 
These new space images are critical to understanding the causes of climate change and monitoring the damage. Because under a UN-proposed scheme called RED, reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, countries, farmers, ranchers, and indigenous groups in rainforests will be compensated for not cutting down the forest, keeping the carbon locked in trees. Satellite sensors will reveal how much is there and help establish a baseline to determine if forests are being cut down or destroyed. Joseph Kellendorfer says the orbiting sensors then act as independent, verifiable eyes in the sky to monitor and force red. You need that time component, the monitoring component. It's, that's the beauty of satellite observations, that you have time series that help you detect what the dynamics are of the, of the surface. But to verify what the satellites see from space is really what's happening in forests, scientists still need people and sensors on the ground. So Woods Hole has begun training people in Congo's rainforest, teaching them how to calculate the carbon in trees. Again, Scott Getz. And then, of course, what we're really interested in is taking that to all the other tropical countries, making pan-tropical maps of carbon stocks. So is there ever too much information? I don't think so. (laughs) We, We seem to never get enough. The amount of data from space sensors monitoring the Earth is measured in the trillions of gigabytes a day and shared internationally. To coordinate the massive amount of information coming from satellites, ground stations, and climate change sensors at sea, the Center for Global Development, NASA, and Cisco Systems have just announced a new project called Planetary Skin, fusing the data from all these sensors so the layers can be peeled back by scientists, revealing what's happening to the planet's climate. Nancy Birdsall is president of the Center for Global Development. These investments in information now are absolutely critical if we're going to have any kind of a system at the global level that people in this country and in other countries can trust. And liftoff of the Taurus rocket with OCO, tracking a greenhouse gas in seek of clues to global warming. Spaceflight, now routine, is still a high-risk venture. Last month, NASA's orbiting carbon observer satellite failed to reach orbit, crashing in Antarctica. It was a $280 million loss. But what's at stake from climate change is far greater. James Fletcher, NASA's administrator during the early days of the Landsat missions, once predicted if one space-age development would save the world, it would be Landsat and its successor satellites. Earth does not reveal her secrets easily. dioxide has the planet between a rock and a hard place. We get needed energy from fossil fuels, yet burning them produces a greenhouse gas that's causing climate change. But perhaps the answer lies in the problem. Put the gas between a rock and a hard place. Not just any rock, but a type called ultramafic. Jörg Matta has investigated this ultra-interesting rock. He's an associate research scientist at Le Mont Dirty Earth Observatory. Hi, Mr. Matter. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the ultramafic rock. 
Yeah, ultramafic rocks are mantle rocks which are usually uh, 25 to 37 miles below surface and they are rich in magnesium uh, silicate minerals and actually these magnesium silicate minerals can be used for carbon sequestration. The magnesium is used to uh, carbonate the CO2 into uh, magnesium carbonate minerals. Which is like chalk and limestone, right? Exactly, yeah. So it sequesters the the carbon dioxide. It, it changes it. Yeah, that's true. It, it changes, you know, the carbon dioxide, which is a gas, into a mineral, which is stable and uh, environmentally benign. So this would provide, then, a, a stable sequestration. You wouldn't have to worry about uh, the gas escaping from a hole in the ground because it wouldn't be a gas anymore. Exactly. And, you know, that's the big, big advantage in, in, in this uh, sequestration option that you produce an environmentally benign calcium or magnesium carbonate mineral, which cannot leak back CO2 into the atmosphere. Well, how long does this chemical reaction take in nature? Every day it takes place, but it's, uh, as we could see in Oman, on average, you know, these carbonates you can find in this type of rocks are 26,000 years old. So it's on geologic time much faster than we thought before, but it's not fast enough for our engineered process to really, you know, soak up a lot of carbon dioxide. So how can we speed up this chemical reaction between the ultramafic rock and CO2? Generally, you know, you can grind the rocks to really fine powder, and then you can react the rocks with carbon dioxide on the surface here, you know, like in a cement factory, and produce, you know, these carbonate minerals. But you can also think about to inject CO2 into these rocks. And also, if you heat up the rocks to 185 degrees, the reaction just takes off and it goes uh, forever. So it's sustainable. And so heat speeds up the reaction. Now, we don't have to drill down, you know, 45 miles into the earth to do this, do we? Or, or do we? Oh, no, no, no. These rocks, you know, are through tectonic processes. These rocks were thrusted onto the uh, continental crust because, you know, the mountain forming processes put these rocks on the surface. Well, you mentioned that you can find this type of rock in Oman. Where in the United States is this rock found? Yeah, the, in the United States, you find uh, a, you know a lot of ultramafic rocks in in California, Oregon, and Washington State. You will find these rocks also you know along the whole Appalachian uh, mountain belt, and you also find it in the interior in uh, Wyoming, Montana, and Minnesota, and a little bit you know excuse me in Texas and in the South. How much CO two could we? We absorb. I mean, we're pumping out like 30 billion tons a year of the stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you could um, sequester, you know, the next 500 years of U.S. CO2 emissions. For Oman itself, and in Oman, we have a, a ultramafic uh, rock body of 350 kilometers long, 40 kilometers wide, and 5 kilometers thick. If we would use every magnesium ion in these rocks and convert that to carbonates, we would have thousands of years uh, absorption capacity. But, you know, more realistic is roughly, you know, on a scale of 1 billion ton of CO2 per year, that's possible in this type of rocks. So if we had an international trading scheme and where there was real value on CO2, countries that had this type of rock could make money out of it. 
Exactly, and that's why, you know, the Ministry of Commerce in, in of the Sultanate of Oman is interested. You know, they have the biggest uh, uh, ultramafic uh, rock body uh, in Oman, and it's just a black-green rock sitting there, but, you know, it could be used as a source of income. Jörg Matta is an associate research scientist at Lamont Doty Earth Observatory, part of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Mr. Matter, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was good talking to you. Just ahead, joking the shark to save the seven seas. That's coming up on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Time now to open our mail. Our story about using federal stimulus funds to build high-tension transmission lines generated quite a bit of response. More than one listener said we didn't ask the obvious questions. Why do we still allow the lines to be strung through the air anyway? And why don't we bury them, especially in sensitive scenic areas or those prone to ice and wind damage? Point taken. J.W. Madison, an electrical contractor who heard the same story on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, asks, Why don't we pay more attention to producing power closer to home to lessen the need for long-distance transmission lines in the first place? Moving power long distance is expensive, inefficient, and sucks up a huge amount of land. Jim Chairs is a transplanted Southerner who listens to LOE on KUOW in Seattle. He enjoyed our home ground essay about kudzu and likes the fast-growing invasive plant, even though it's taking root all over the country. You know, it seems as if folks in the South continuously complain about how kudzu has taken over the landscape, yet I hear little regarding the beneficial uses of the plant. For example, it makes a great clothing, it's used in weaving. We keep a little bit of the root in the kitchen to help with stomach ailments, as well as we use it as a cooking thickener. And Jim Chairs suggests that kudzu might even make a good biofuel. And talking about plants, our emerging science note about molding coconut husks into car parts and truck liners got quite a response. Gene Amaral, an anthropology professor from Ohio, listens to us on his iPod. He says in Indonesia, where he does field research, villages use coconut husks for fuel and compost. If villagers were to sell husks to corporations as raw materials for car parts, not only would they have to buy manufactured chemical fertilizers and propane fuel to replace the coconut husks, they would also lose the added value that would go to the processors of the coconut fibers and manufacturers of the parts. Our interview with California's Energy Commissioner, Arthur Rosenfeld, piques some interest. The commissioner is an advocate of white roofs and roads, which he says can help cool the planet. WBUR listener Michael Frischman from Andover, Massachusetts, says white roofs could also save some cool cash. Seems because light-colored roofs expand and contract less in the heat, 
They last longer. Well, whether it's about the sky above or the earth below or anything in between on our show that intrigues or annoys, let us know by email or phone. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. The state of the world's oceans is serious stuff. Fish are becoming scarce, coral is dying, and the seas are filled with plastic flotsam. No, nothing to laugh at, unless you catch the syndicated newspaper comic Sherman's Lagoon. The comic strip features a cast of coral reef critters living on Kapupu Lagoon in the South Pacific. The creator is cartoonist Jim Toomey. Jim was among those at the recent Blue Vision Summit in Washington, D.C., a gathering of 150 organizations that deal with ocean issues. And Jim Toomey joins me from the nation's capital. Hi, Jim. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks. Happy to be here, Bruce. So what's a cartoonist doing at the the Blue Vision Summit about the ocean? <laughs> well, first of all, cartoonists have more time than they know, know what to do with. So we uh, we get involved in all kinds of crazy things. The Blue Vision Summit was uh, a natural connection to my interest in my comic strip because my comic strip is set underwater and it's got a lot of the same characters that we're, we're trying to save at the Blue Vision Summit. The Blue Vision Summit's all about bringing together a wide variety of nonprofits and government folks and academics and uh, cartoonists and artists to discuss uh, ocean conservation. Well, let's talk about your creation here a little bit and how it fits into the sure. ocean. Um, there's Sherman, your, your dim-witted shark. He eats gum off the seats of, of movie theaters. Yeah, well, he's kind of a scavenger. He's uh, I made him my my main character because he's naive and he'll pretty much say anything, um, which is a great for a main character, even though he's not the brightest light bulb in the box. <laughs> but his, um, his sidekick, though, Fillmore, the sea turtle? Fillmore's a sea turtle, and he's sort of the rational half of the two. He's the hardy of the laurel and hardy, if, if you will. Um, and Sherman will say anything and do anything, and, and Fillmore kind of keeps him in check. I try to round out the cast with a couple other characters like Hawthorne, the irascible hermit crab. Um, he's always thinking up a new business plan and trying to swindle people out of their hard-earned money. And there's uh, Sherman's wife, Megan, who's uh, kind of an overbearing but sensitive uh, female shark. And uh, and then there's Ernest, who's uh, kind of a nerd, a little fish who surfs the internet and poses as a human on the internet. And he causes all kinds of problems on the on the dirt side of the of the world. The character who interests me is is Thornton, the polar bear, who basically <laughs> hitches an iceberg and winds up in the South Pacific Lagoon. He's a lot of people's favorite characters, and a lot of these characters are just little parts of my own character. And, and as a cartoonist, I get a lot of grief for having a lot of spare time and doing fun things like this Blue Vision Summit. And Thornton's always on vacation. He's always just laying on the beach. And polar bears don't really hibernate, but this one, he hibernates on the, the beach, this fictional beach where my lagoon is set pretty much all summer and then, or all winter, I'm, I'm sorry. And then he goes off to various places to live his real life. A couple of times I've taken him back to the North Pole where um, I've done some cartoons on the polar ice melting up there. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you've got a degree in environmental management. How would Thornton and the rest of your crew, um, you know, fare with global warming and, and the, the rising of sea level and, and the asphyxiation of the ocean? Right. Well, they're not faring well in, in the real world. And, and what I'm trying to do without trying to beat my readers over the head with, with an environmental stick is to make them aware of that. So when I, when I did bring Thornton, the polar bear, up, back to his home. I had him swimming around. I had him uh, looking for, for ice and floating around on a very small iceberg and so forth. So in that kind of subtle way, I, I'm making readers aware that 
there are large problems up there. So is the art of making a comic um, subversive, that is, you know, kind of <laughs> slipping in that environmental yeah. message? Well, subversive is kind of a strong word, but maybe maybe subtle. Um, I'm a cartoonist first and an environmentalist second. My job, if you want to call it a job, is to entertain. And if I stop entertaining, then I lose my readership. And if I lose my readership, then I it doesn't matter what my message is. Nobody's going to read it. So my priority is to make readers come to the paper and, and read the strip. And then I can slip an environmental message in there. Part of the mission of the cartoon is to make people aware that there's a lot more complexity under that surface. And, and sometimes that doesn't come through in the the nature documentaries and the books and so forth, the, the actual animal behavior that I like to weave into the comic strip. You know, for instance, um, uh, Fillmore the sea turtle. He's a green sea turtle, and he goes to this place called Ascension Island where real green sea turtles go to uh, lay eggs. Um, so I weave those real marine biology uh, nuggets into the comic strip. And by the end of you know reading a series, hopefully you've picked up a thing or two about um, the environment and the science of the ocean. Where do you get your ideas from? Uh, do you read the science journals or just the news about environmental issues in the ocean and then try to incorporate them into the cartoon? Sure, I, I do a lot of that. And, and part of the reason I got the, the master's degree in, in environmental management was to build a better foundation, to, to understand some of those articles at a, at a deeper level than your average uh, person. So I try to distill it down to some simple messages because you can't really get too complicated, especially with a comic strip. You have to distill it down to very simple messages. So you can have a, a serious message in this comic. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe not a message, but a, a serious fact or two. Uh, in the end, I, I hope to make people laugh, but in a way that provokes their thought. Um, I ran a Sunday comic strip a while back that was spoke to sustainable seafood, where there was Sherman the shark, and then there was Hawthorne the, the hermit crab. And Hawthorne was pointing out the different fish swimming by and how some fish are okay to eat in a seafood restaurant and some aren't. And you can eat this snapper and you can't eat that <laughs> salmon and so forth and so forth. Uh -huh. And by the second to the last panel, uh, a human snorkeler went by and, and Hawthorne <laughs> says to Sherman, you can eat as many of those as you want. Yeah, I knew where you were going. I, I saw the panel. <laughs> I want to ask you about your musical, Sherman's Lagoon. Yeah, sure. Is, is now in the theater. It premiered last year, and uh, it's Knockwood, destined for uh, a regional theater or two. And it's fantastic. I, I can say that because I, I didn't have a lot to do with the music part of it. And uh, the music just knocked my socks off. Well, Jim Toomey, I really enjoyed talking with you. It was a pleasure to be here, Bruce. Cartoonist Jim Toomey is the creator of the newspaper comic strip Sherman's Lagoon. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing Clams Casino and the Oysters Rockefeller. They say the early bird catches the worm, but one Florida family gives the bird a run for its money. Peter White got down and dirty to bring us this story. It's just after sunrise in the Apalachicola National Forest in northern Florida. A hazy mist hangs in the air, and there's dew on the ground. A hundred-foot pine trees stand like soldiers on parade. Just another day at the office for Gary and Audrey Revel and their 33-year-old son, Snap. All right, let's do it. Come on, Mom. 
Gary and Snap each carry a stob, a hardwood stake about two feet long, sharpened to a point. Their other tool is a flat steel bar called a whooping iron. An inch thick, it weighs ten pounds, and is tapered at one end to fit your hand. They pound their stakes into the ground with the flat of the iron and make them vibrate by rubbing the iron back and forth across the top of the stop. What they're doing is hunting for worms. Once you make the right music, they'll go to dancing for you. Hopefully I'm doing it. <laughs> the Revel Clan has been harvesting worms this way for generations. Some call it worm grunting. They call it rooping. That's just a term we came up with. And some people call it scrub bait, scrubbing the stuff, you know, grunt. Grunt worms, bump worms, maybe some would say charming or fiddling or whatever, you know. By whatever name, it works. I can feel the vibrations under my feet. Out of the ground come earthworms by the dozens. I can't believe my eyes. Here's another one. Here's another one. Audrey crouches low and moves quickly, snatching up worms as they leave their burrows. Her gallon bucket is soon full. 500 worms. That's a full can. On a good day, one grunter can keep two collectors busy. Some grunters use smaller stakes and lighter irons, says Gary. And they make a high pitch. You know, where ours has got a rumble to it. You know, they both work. Gary and Snap read the ground like a map. Small holes and worm castings, the presence of birds, are good signs. The white sand mounds made by crayfish tell them the ground is low and moist here. The weather and even the phase of the moon affect how well they will do. Snap pounds his stob about a foot into the ground and begins to draw his iron across the top, playing it like a giant fiddle. Then he pounds again. The tone changes as the point of the stob reaches down to the dense sand or pan below the topsoil. Normally, when you start noticing the bait surface is when it actually gets into that hard pan, and then the vibration travels a little better. The shorter the stob gets, the higher the pitch. It sounds like a raspy saxophone solo. But the longer the stob, the lower the pitch. Apparently these are more Beethoven type. <laughs> Gary lets me have a go at it. It's definitely harder than it seems. He gets ten worms to every one I coax out of the ground. But why does it work? That's what biologist Ken Catania of Vanderbilt University was determined to find out. When you think about all the predators and things that like to eat earthworms, you would imagine that they should go down when there's a vibration or something digging or some sort of disturbance on the ground. But instead, they're going the wrong way. They're streaming out of the ground. So that's sort of an irresistible mystery. Why would they do that? He got a tip from a slim volume about earthworms written by Charles Darwin in 1881. In that book, he pointed out that it has often been said that if the ground is beaten or otherwise made to tremble, worms believe that they are pursued by a mole and leave their burrows. And I thought that was just a great clue to what might be going on. So Catania went down to the Apalachicola Forest to meet the Revels and study their technique. The first thing he discovered was that lots of eastern moles live in the forest. Next, he measured the vibrations made by the Revels and the vibrations made by digging moles. They overlapped. Then he put the worms and moles together to see what happened. It was amazing to see. So as soon as that mole dug down into the dirt, up came the earthworms sort of streaming out of the ground in front of it, basically looking like they were 
running. If you could describe a worm as running, and um, they were moving about as fast as a worm could go. Why up and not down? Because moles won't chase worms above ground for fear of becoming prey themselves. Earthworms come out of the ground to escape their worst enemy, only to be caught by the revels. Biologists call this hunting strategy exploitive mimicry. It is used by a rare predator, in this case a worm grunter, who takes advantage of a prey's escape response to its main predator. Wood turtles and seagulls do the same thing the revels do. They tap the ground pretending to be a mole, and the worms come up. Back in the forest, the revels have collected six cans of worms in about three hours. A lot of grunting going on out here. The sun has climbed overhead. It's time to go back to the shop and count them out into little blue containers, which they sell to bait shops. Set them in the shade. The revels live pretty much off the grid, but wouldn't put it that way. Rather, outside of town where it's quiet and the living is easy. It's totally different. And once you're accustomed to this type of a, a living, it's hard to cope with any other. People drop by to chew the fat, and if the rebels aren't home, they count their own worms and leave the money in a box in the bait shop. Next month, the rebels will give demonstrations at the annual worm grunting festival in the small town of Sopchoppy, Florida. They'll be there with the stakes and irons and thousands of worms they've brought from the forest just for the occasion. For Living on Earth, this is Peter White. Not like a wild boar or a jungle lion's roar. It isn't like the cry of any bird. But there's a new sound, it's deep down in the ground, and everyone who listens to it squirms, because it's new, new sound, so deep down in the ground is the sound that's made by worms. On the next Living on Earth, California counts the carbs, putting vehicle fuels on a low-carbon diet. To achieve our 2050 goals for greenhouse gas emissions, 80% below 1990 levels, really requires that we completely transform and decarbonize our transportation energy system. California climate change and the fuels of the future, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week at the Widened Fen in Cambridgeshire, England. It's not quite spring yet at the National Nature Reserve, but the gang's all here. Redshanks, coots, and lapwings are just a few of the fine-feathered friends who sing, wing, and strut their stuff at this wetland. It's one of the most important in all of Europe. Richard Margotius recorded these birds gone wild for the British Library National Sound Archive CD, Wild Britain. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Steve Kerwitt is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.